Heads up, Campus features mature content. This week, we continue Mohammed al Masalmeh's harrowing story of living through the revolution in Syria. In the middle of his fourth year on campus, the Arab Spring took hold, and the Assad regime responded with a hail of bullets. Mohammed witnessed a massacre in his hometown of Dara, a day that ignited a revolution and set Syria ablaze with anger. Before we continue Mohammed's story, let's get you caught up and take you back to the moment the Arab Spring was sweeping through the region. This is what popular uprising looks like. After weeks of scenes like these across the country, it appears to be the end for Tunisia's president after 23 years in power. Listen to that crowd, that's what they've been waiting for. Hosni Mubarak has gone. There are very few moments in our lives where we have the privilege to witness history taking place. This is one of those moments. The people of Egypt have spoken, their voices have been heard, and Egypt will never be the same. After what happened in the Arab Spring, Tunisia and then Libya and then Egypt and then Yemen, like every president back in the Arab world was like really stressed and, you know, cautious about what is, who's next, what country is next. And uh, you, you can like feel the tension in the air. I guess it was like midweek and I received a call from a friend of mine and he told me, man, be careful. And when I asked him why, he said, just something is happening. There's a lot of tension in Dara. And he said, well, there's, there's a bunch of kids wrote this graffiti on the wall of their school. And the writing says, now it's your turn, president. It's your time to fall. And when they arrested about 15 kids, I remember there are some photo leaked for the kids where uh, some of them are like burned with cigarettes. They had their uh, fingernails pulling out and uh, some of them just were beaten with, you know, with whips and people got really angry, especially when they knew that kids are being tortured and people started going out and protesting. So he was just screaming and singing what the other people, our neighborhoods, uh, singing. And then I, I heard a lot of fire shots. So uh, me and my brothers, we went there to the uh, street. And uh, we saw all those people laying on the ground. Some of them are still alive screaming. And because it was a rainy day, there's this huge river of blood pouring down the street of those people who are being killed. I, I, I was really shaking. I couldn't believe my eyes. Well, is this happening in my city? Is this happening in Syria? What is going on? I felt like I'm paralyzed. I want to do something, but I couldn't. And I was really sad and I, I wanted to cry, but I was like, like frozen in my place. I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything. This is a city draped in black and a city raging with anger. For the past week, Dara has been burying their dead. Demonstrators killed while clashing with security forces. 
Dozens are believed to have died. People here say at least 150. Living in my city, in Doha, I knew that people won't stay calm about this. I knew that something big will happen next day, and it did. Oh my God, it was like the best feeling in the world while protesting. Having the freedom to say whatever you want after like 40 years of oppression in Syria, this is, this is priceless. This is, this is the best thing that could ever happen to Syrians. And this is the main reason that the whole thing started. We wanted freedom. And then we heard, heard this really loud noise that coming from far away. It was like, okay, something serious is about to happen. And when we went to the balcony of our house, we, we saw tanks just driving down the streets, the, the main road. And then the, those black uniformed ASF guys were on foot talking on their walkie-talkie and putting people on roofs and snipers and all that. So it was really overwhelming. And then uh, everything started. Fire shots and uh, bombs in the old city. And uh, whenever we wanted to just go on the balcony or you know look from the window, they will fire shots in the air to tell us, don't look, go inside. So you couldn't leave the house ever. So Dara'a under the siege was like ghost city because checkpoints doesn't allow anyone to go out. And in, on every roof of the building, there were snipers and tanks that are patrols roaming around the city just looking for something, if something's moving or someone is in the street or something. You hearing these bombs and you, you're thinking of the people are just like, are being killed because of those bombs. And my aunts and my uncles are there. And my, my grandpa's house uh, is there. And so uh, I always th I was thinking about them. I was like, what's going on with them? What is happening? Are they still alive? And my father was always worried. And uh, I, many times I found him crying, worried about his sisters. My younger brother Mihyar goes to the door and opens it. There is a group of soldiers shouting at the door and he said, we want to search the house. And they, they kicked the door. The soldiers storm in with their guns running through the house. And they kept screaming at us, where are the guns? Where do you hide them? Where are the guns? I said, I'm just a student. I don't know anything. Then they said that, okay, then you will die and your brothers will die with you. And then they put us three against the wall on our knees and blindfolded and our hands cuffed. And then uh, the soldiers put the guns at the back of our heads and they said for the final time, where are the guns? The second part of Muhammad's story begins at a detention center in Dara, where he and his brothers are taken for questioning. When we arrived, they took us to the basement of that division, 
with the other 50 uh, people they took from my neighborhood and uh, we were put there for 12 hours just nobody talked to us no food no anything so i remember when they for first throw us in the prison uh, the room was really small and really crowded and uh, there's uh, it's a dark room with no electricity and no ventilation and it, it has a small bathroom attached to it so imagine the smell of 25 people without any shower and the bathroom is open to their room and they, they have been there for some of them for six or seven months and uh, so when I walked in it was like this horrifying smell and uh, everyone looked with you know long hair long beard and they, they looked pale and they they didn't have any hope in, the, in them and they will get out so it was really scary from the first moment I stepped in. All the, all the night long we'd hear the, like some people are being tortured and screams all, all night long and we couldn't even like close our eyes and we were, when somebody has been taken to interrogation we were just praying for them to be like able to take, to endure that pain and that torture because when they bring them back, they were like almost half dead, bleeding and can't walk. They just drag them through the hallway and just throw them in the prison. And when they would be unable to walk or even speak, they were just like bruises all over and uh, bleeding. When you, when you see somebody that received all that torture, then you'll see, okay, uh, you'll think, that, okay, I'm, I'm next, I'm next. Sitting in the basement, I was really, really nervous and I was really scared. They will hit me, they will t torture me, they will kill me. The worst part is the waiting and hearing people being tortured. This is, this is the most horrifying thing ever. So when my turn came, they took me to the, like an interrogation room. And he said, where's the guns? Where are the guns? What, what's your affiliation with the rebels? Who do you know? And when I was, I was screaming, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. They start to hit me more and more. And while the detective was asking questions, there's this guy who was standing behind me. And then when I wouldn't answer a question, he said, And has there she? Do you feel this? And I asked him, no, what is that? He said, these are wires, electric wires, and I will turn them on if you don't answer. And I was shouting, please, I don't know what you're talking about. I remember I was like laying down on the ground shaking while he's just laughing and as asking me tell me what what I want to know just tell me just tell me I I won't stop until you tell me if you don't give me what I want you know what, what I will do <laughs> so when I said that I don't know what you're talking about he called the guy again he's and he said uh, throw him back in the prison and this go went for days 
in the mornings we were all looking at each other and I was always looking to my brother and I was asking him, are we going to be out ever? Are we? This is the, the ugliest thing ever, to, be, to wait for something that you don't know if it's going to happen or not. I was really like, devastated and destroyed. You know, I started remembering those stories that my father used to tell me when that people stayed there for 25 years and some of them died in prison. And those stories just like flashback to, came to my mind. It's like, am I that one? Am I that person? Am I gonna die in here? So I remember that I was sleeping just by the door and uh, my brother Mihyar was in the next cell next to us and there's this the jailer came to the, his prison and asked for his name. So he took my brother and then he, he said, uh, who do you have with you? And he said, I have my two brothers, they are in this cell. And then he opened the cell and looked at us, he said, bring your stuff back uh, with you and come with me. Then we went to the like an interrogation room, but without any blindfold or something. And this is this was the first time that we saw the people who were torturing us and interrogating us, and it was really scary. And so uh, they said, "Okay, here, sign here and sign there." And I I asked him, "What is this?" And then he started to shout at me and hit me again. He said, "Just sign without any question." So I signed on something. And they put me with my two brothers and another guy in a small van. And I didn't know where, uh, where, where I'm going. Am I being taken to uh, another prison or am I being taken to the capital? So I was really, really scared. And they, uh, all the way they were just like, you know, messing with our heads and hitting us and asking us to sing songs about the president, how to praise the president. And at uh, the beginning, none of us sang. So they started hitting us with the back of the guns on our back. And then he slapped me in the face. He said, you should start singing. And he, they were making fun of us and laughing all the way till we got there. Mohammed didn't know it at the time, but that humiliating ride was his last round of torture. He and his brothers were taken to see a judge who told them, without apology, that their arrest was a case of mistaken identity. I looked at my brother and I told him, so that's it, can we go now? He said, don't ask any question, just let us leave. So when we went out, uh, we didn't know where are we. So just running through the street, just like a bird, you just let him out of the cage. I don't know where I am, but I can run, I can see the sun, I can smell the fresh air. And looking at people and just people like having normal life, kids are playing in the streets. That moment I was thinking for a second, are we that forgetting? Are all the detainees and prisoners really forgotten by the people? And nobody was thinking about us? And then I was like, okay, this is, this is a chance for another life. I've just, get, I've just got like a new opportunity in my life, a new life. And I'm running, I'm running. But in my mind, everything's going slowly, slowly. I can't believe that I, I want to be at home, but you know, time is not fast enough for me to get home. Everything's slow in my head. And 
you know, walking into the outside door of my house is like really feeling like, okay, I'm home, finally, I'm from home. We opened the, first, the inside door and saw my father standing there in front of the door. And when he saw us, he just, his knees couldn't hold him. He fell on the ground crying. Is that you guys? Is that you? Are you, is, are you my kids? And he was crying and he, he was screaming. He was like, the kids are home. The kids are home. After weeks of torture and torment, Muhammad was finally home. But there was no escaping the terror of what happened, and his family now had a choice to make. Either pick up guns and protect themselves from regime forces, or leave everything behind and abandon their homeland. They contacted a family friend who could smuggle them out of Syria and into Jordan. So when I called the guy who was supposed to take us to the border, he said, we're leaving today and you have two hours just to prepare yourselves. And uh, every day, just during those two hours, the, they will stop the bombing. So that was our only window. I remember I only took... Uh, small bag and a backpack, uh, which is in my backpack, but I, bu I bought my uh, laptop and my cell phone and my chargers. And uh, in my big bag, I, uh, I bought my certificates, my passports and some of the clothes, that's it. The guy who was supposed to take us to the border, he had this small van, so we, uh, we loaded everything we had, we wanted to take with us and he drives, and just when we left our neighborhood, uh, we arrived to this checkpoint, and he said, shit, this checkpoint wasn't here yesterday. This really was like really scary for us. And then the soldier asked him, what are you doing here? He said, oh no, I'm just taking my family to like a, a certain place. And he said, what's with all the bags? And then that guy said, uh, well, don't worry. And he reached out from his pocket and he had some money in his hand and just shook hand with the, with the soldier and gave him the money. And he said, well, okay, just don't, don't go from this way, go, go from that way. So he, shows, he showed us the way. Then we uh, we drove from there, and we were driving through a forest, and uh, and then through a farm, and then uh, uh, just like on a really hard road, not just not like an, uh, a main road. And uh, when we saw the border, and the, the driver told us, "Okay, the, we are here." The Jordanian army took us from the Syrian side to the Jordanian side into uh, uh, like a huge tent where other families were there waiting to be picked up and sent to the refugee camp. And they said, congratulations, you are safe now. Although we are safe, 
we were really feeling sad, especially especially my father. He was like, his heart is like ripped out of his body. He was like just standing there looking at, you know, the Syrian side of the border. He was like, I want to go back. I want to go back. I want to die in my land, in my farm. Unfortunately, I only have memories of, of my friends because if uh, some of them are died and some of them and uh, left Syria and I don't have anyone in my family now in Syria oh, everyone left Syria it's really it's really sad Mohammed is just one of five million refugees who have fled Syria since the Assad regime began its ruthless crackdown six years ago he spent three years in Jordan before leaving his family and starting his new life here in Canada Mohammed is now a new Canadian something he doesn't take for granted. But he still hurts for his homeland and the people he left behind. For the first time in years, I feel like a human being again. I feel like I'm alive. I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm studying. I'm being positive now. I'm, I, can, I can go wherever I want. I can work. I can do everything I want. I consider myself fortunate to have the opportunity that I, I left Syria and then had the chance to come to Canada. I was like a few of the lucky ones who've been having this opportunity to start new lives. Because Canada did something for me that all the Arab countries didn't do. They gave me the chance for a new life where the, all the neighboring Arab countries that they share the same religion, that they share the same culture as we do, they didn't do shit for us. I learned about myself is that life continues on it never stops whether you like it or not and I figured that I should not just sit around and blame life this happened to me and that life did this to me otherwise I'll be just still in Syria and you know maybe dead arrested or God knows what but what I'm really sad about is that the people who are still in Syria who can't leave, the people who are still in detainees in, 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 in prison have been tortured every day and nobody's thinking about them. I've been there. I've been there before. I've done that. Every time, like, I think about what is going on in Syria, I mean, you see in the media that people that have been killed. Honestly, the people who are dead now, they are relieved. They don't have to feel and live that life again. But what really saddens me now is that the people who are still under torture and in prison, and they are forgotten. should know who's the bad guy who's the good side who's the bad side and uh, you should at least know that the people are who are the victim here and the regime is the murderer 
And for those who say well, that, oh, we were living in Syria, we were not. We were living, but without dignity, without freedom. Syrians were not allowed to say anything. We were living under the mercy of the regime. And don't don't assume that, okay, maybe it's, it's a civil war or something. It's not a civil war. It's a revolution, a revolution for freedom. People just started protesting, just looking for freedom. But then all the countries got themselves involved and destroyed what is the revolution from the Syrian people. I always let people know if you have any question on, on Syria about Islam, about about people who about refugees, just ask me. Don't assume that you know everything. You don't know anything. Just or even even if you've been watching the news for the past five or six years about Syria, you don't know nothing. If you didn't live there, you wouldn't know the truth. The media doesn't show one percent of the truth of what's going on in Syria. I don't know. Nobody I mean there are some people who still believe that is still a revolution and they are still fighting for that in Syria. But of course, what a stone will do against like a, an airstrike? What a bullet will do against a weapon of mass destruction? Nothing. And the whole international community is just watching what is happening in Syria. And recently I saw footage of drone in my city, just flying and taking videos of my city right now. The city just looks like ghost city. Everything is destroyed. Buildings are on the ground. Schools have been destroyed. Mosques, uh, churches, everything has been destroyed. I, I'm here in Canada now. I am feel like paralyzed. I can't send money there. I don't have money. I can't send food there. I can't do anything except just raising awareness of what's going on in Syria. And uh, the crazy thing is that before I left Jordan, they wouldn't allow me to leave unless I signed a paper that says I would never go back to Jordan. Because they don't want you to be back as Syrian or as a refugee. I can't imagine. Now, now I'm like, I FaceTime my, my family uh, like every day. And whenever they like, they take me on a tour through the house to my room where I still I used to sleep in Jordan, and where we used to sit down and uh, like have have food together. I was like, I want to go to Jordan now, just to be with my family. Campus is produced by Eric Mann and me, Albert Long. The senior producer is Sean Brocklehurst. Special thanks to Sari Mali. If you want to hear more life-changing stories on campus, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Give us a shout on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let us know what you thought about Muhammad's story. Hit us up at CampusCBC. Thanks for listening. Take care. Take care.